Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, October 6th, 2019. Indeed. We're exhausted. We're exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sad to say. I'm on the top of my game. You seem like you're, oh my God. you're dragging. Top of your game. You're, you're bedragging. That's a low bar. <laughs> um, we had a big bike ride yesterday. Yeah, Dan dragged me on some... Uh, let's be specific. It was Ride Strong Rube, which I think is the pronunciation. Uh, I looked it up. And uh, it is a bike ride event uh, in Hunterdon County, uh, Frenchtown. Well, it was sponsored by our buddies at Pure Energy Cycling. Exactly. And it was, it was in conjunction with the big cyclocross race thing. That's right. And we had no idea. So no. this really opened our eyes. So... Well, let's well let's talk about cyclocross. A lot of men in really tight outfits. Oh, but, but a lot of children biking through the grass. A lot of young through people through the trees. All right, well, let me be more barriers. specific. Let me give a clearer picture. So, what cyclocross racing turns out to be is like an obstacle course, almost. It's it's a narrowly cordoned off course with tight turns, and there are through the woods. relatively short races, and you use cyclocross bikes, which are distinguished from normal. Uh, road bikes, they're a little hardier, they're a little stronger, they're a little heavier, uh, and they're meant for sprinting. That's what distinguishes them from gravel bikes. They have to deal with some rough road. Um, and in fact, as you pointed out, Tams, sometimes people have to jump off the bike and hop over a stream or something like that. It's a little bit rough going. A wooden board. Oh, that too. Is what I saw. Yes. So, uh, so, but this is a whole culture that, uh, this is bike racing culture that these people have gotten together. I guess on a regular basis and race like crazy and give out awards and a bunch of people are showing up in trucks with these bikes and with children and, and adults and something. And who knew? It's a whole world out there. Well, that is the funny thing about us. What? We ride bikes so much and we know nothing about well, bicycle riding. Well, I think you can ride bikes a lot and, and not know anything about cyclocross bike riding. But in any event, so it is uh, competition. And so that's going on, and they even have a guy doing a play-by-play of all the cyclocross races, which yeah, was we, we got it, no small we'll annoyance. Move on to the thing we did. We did the 40-miler from the Ride Strong Roubaix, which is its own challenge. And it was, uh, I'd say it's hilly. It was a hilly ride. Fair enough? It was super hilly. It was very hilly. And well, l- listen, you know you're in trouble. Yeah. When uh, they hand out, uh, when, you, when you register, when you, when you check in. Yeah. They hand out goodie bags. Yeah. And they say, we've included some snacks. What they're calling snacks are little tubes of gel. Right. And those kind of protein power bar things that God only knows what they're made well, of. Well, it's the gel that's the giveaway. Yeah. The power bars are ubiquitous. But if you're taking people, gel shots. People who take gel during a bike race are oh. not casual cyclists. Exactly. So we're lined up at the beginning. It's a fairly small group, 20, 25. And there's not a bike there that's under five thousand dollars, except for ours, frankly. And there are many, many more thousand dollars in that. And and people are spiffed out in all their uh, uh, modern bike gear. It's something we're a little short of also. But we had the satisfaction of passing this couple on a hill near the end, and uh, they actually had to give up. She stopped to go to the bathroom. No, no, the second time she she stopped because she couldn't make it up the hill. It was uh, it was tough. So we are a little dragging today, but we had fun. It was uh, it was a nice enough day. It was cold at the Wait beginning. Wait a minute. When did we have fun? We had fun the whole time. You couldn't stop talking about what a good time you had yesterday, and uh, you're welcome. Uh, and, and no, I was, the, you know, the one bright moment for me was 
And aside from finishing, I made it up every hill. You know why I make it up every hill? Why? No matter how steep. How? Why? Because. Yeah. If I stop, I will fall over. Yes. I when you're going that slow, I cannot on a hill. I'm sure I couldn't get my. You're giving it an accurate picture. Out of the you were uh, motoring up. Pedals. You were motoring up the oh hills. Oh my god! You go the same speed no matter whether we're going uphill or downhill. But and the that's one a mixed bright blessing. moment. What? The one bright moment. What aside was the from one not falling? Yes. Um, was that I did get to go across the Rosemont uh, Raven Rock Bridge. Yeah. Well, it's a nice it was bridge. A fantastic right. little bridge. You can Google it. Don't bother. The uh, images. The images. It, it looks completely nondescript. Yeah. But it was a lovely bridge. Good. Uh, going over a lovely creek. That's right. It's it's at apparently an important bridge in New Jersey bridge history. Well, it's I kind had of stood out. No idea, but it was fin- and much then, better. We also went through the you know. The ubiquitous uh, um, covered bridge. Yeah, you know we we we've been through enough covered bridges. Yes, we don't we don't brag about not that. Very well, we haven't. Not very we have to decide next week. We may or may not do the you know, covered the, bridge. The view ride. from a covered bridge is terrible. Yeah, especially on the inside. Uh, the covered bridge ride in Tinicum is next Sunday. We may or may not do it depending on the weather, but we've done it many times. Uh, so aside from bike riding. Uh, which was something, but we're still kind of feeling the after effects from, so it's top of mind, is on Thursday, we went to a show, uh, a roundabout show called Scotland PA. And Scotland PA, I learned maybe 45 seconds before it began, is a musical. And it is a musical... Based on... Based on a movie called Scotland PA in 2001 with uh, Christopher Walken and Maura Tierney, which is a parody... And I'll come back to that. Of Macbeth, right? Uh, based on Macbeth. It's the Macbeth story. Of, and, of Shakespeare. Fame. Yeah, I think we know what people know that. But uh, so you had this sort of the story of Macbeth or sometimes called the Scottish play. Did you know that people who are superstitious never use the term Macbeth? They just say the Scottish play. Why? They're superstitious. There's no Because why. of the real Macbeth person? I don't or? know why. It doesn't interest me enough. But... Uh, I've run into enough people who say the Scottish play and you don't know what the heck they're talking about. But in any event, um, so it was a musical. It was uh, music we'd never heard before. Uh, I fairly described as rock music, I suppose. Uh, and so what do you think? Well, first of all, we should mention that the way they um, worked the parody was they also included, kind of intertwined, another famous Mac, and that would be MacDonald. Oh, yes. Yeah, well, you should story. tell the story. Okay. So it's, it's, we don't have to tell the story. Well, you tell no, a little no, bit. No, don't tell the story. It'll take too long. The kingdom is the, the guy who runs a hamburger chain. That's yeah. the kingdom. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, um, you know, it was okay. As I said to you at the time, it, um, it reminded me of a very, very good, uh, you know, um, college theater production. Yeah. You know, somebody's got some talent and is writing uh, a fun little right. musical. Mm-hmm. Um, so... It, you know, it it was fine. It was cute, fun, whatever. Uh, a little gory. Um, I know uh, you were shocked by the language. No, was I? Yes. Well, you kept grimacing. I was grimacing because I didn't think it was very good. Uh, <laughs> so when you would say a very good college play, I'd say a very good high school play. But here's the thing. I mean, you know, I, I'm not going to make fine gradations about the quality of the music because I didn't think it was very good. 
the actors were appealing as they generally are. Uh, and they certainly are putting their heart and soul into it. But here, here's the fundamental problem with it. Uh, and that's the movie. Why would anybody musicalize this movie? And let me tell you why. Assuming this was a faithful musical adaptation of the movie, the movie doesn't make any sense because it's a parody, okay? Or even this production. It's a parody of Macbeth. To be a parody, to be an effective parody, what you're really doing is you're taking a piece of work and you're pointing out in a subtle, humorous way little odd aspects of it, little peculiarities, and that people sort of react to and they laugh even as they enjoy the level of your performance because you're aping really a good work of art. So if you're watching like or listening to Forbidden Broadway, you know, you hear them like imitating uh, Patti Lapone on Evita, they're sort of picking up on some things that are a little bit peculiar than you could sort of, uh, you know, make some fun of in Evita, even as they're being affectionate about Evita, and even as the person can sing and the music is good. Okay. So are you sure this was a parody? It's, it's described in the program as a parody. Everyone's describing it as a parody. Maybe it was just inspired but here, by it. Well, here's, here's my problem. Okay, It's not that I'm getting hung up on the word parody. I'm just saying that parody can work. Parody can be interesting because there's a certain level of appeal because you're comparing the two and you see the joke uh, and, and you're kind of enjoying both at the same time. If you're just taking this and saying, let's have a plot that's like the Scottish play and uh, we'll do this, that's not going anywhere. Because the plot of the Scottish play isn't that great. That's not what's great about the Scottish play. And what's great about it is the way Shakespeare wrote it and the language that was in it. That's what makes it. There's nothing uh, convoluted or complicated well, or interesting about the play. I think you're taking it a little too seriously. Well, I, I, I think it was just... Uh, well, I'm just trying to... I think, I, I think it was just a starting point and, uh, it, you know, it was let me just... T- let me put it... But this is why I'm not... Why I don't think I'm taking it too seriously. I didn't like it. So now I'm... So I, it's not like I came to, to a complicated analysis to land on I didn't like it I didn't like it sitting there so now I'm thinking back why didn't it work that's what I'm trying to get at and that's the reason I think it didn't work because I, I thought no, those actors I, were very appealing no I, I think it was meant to be fun and crazy and out there and uh, but I can enjoy fun crazy and out there but really uh, yes when <laughs> I'm Mr. Fun Crazy and Out There. I, I think most people, when you say fun crazy out there, the words Dan and Abuhoff come soon afterwards on the heels of fun crazy, certainly out there. Okay. And I didn't, I didn't get it. All right. So there but, was that. But anyway, but, but we're excited because uh, it's putting us in a Macbeth kind of mood. Uh, we're going to go soon to see the classic stage production. Of Macbeth. The Scottish play. Uh, so uh, that should be fun. Yes, yeah, supposed to be uh, very good. We should good. be real experts. With Corey Stoll. Yes, uh, we will be. We'll be with real experts and we'll see how that holds up to Scotland, PA. Uh, that won't be musical. Uh, and uh, But we were also reflecting on the play we saw last week. We talked about Fern Hill. And so what do we see uh, in the paper this week? An article about the real estate, which I think fairly inspired Fern Hill. Is that right? Does that sound is right to you? This where you want to go. You told me you wanted to talk about criticism. Oh, 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 well, yeah. All right, let me do that. I think you're you're right to remind me because well, uh, because I'm feeling very critical. No, of your no. analysis. Well, of okay, because I was being harsh. All right, let me th- briefly. And I thought this was interesting. Thank you for reminding me. Martin Bernheimer, Bernheimer passed away. He was the music critic in Lo- in for Los Angeles uh, for the classical music, and apparently he was the scourge of the Los Angeles uh, Philharmonic, and he was harshly critical. And, for example, here's what he said about Zubin Mehta, who's very well respected, obviously, a historical figure. Quote, although Mehta never had difficulty pleasing the casual concert goer, he did not always make a minority of hardcore aficionados ecstatic. They recognized his penchant for the superficial effect, 
his willingness to cheapen a subtle impulse, his tendency to exaggerate, his weakness, or is it strength, for bombast, and disinclination for subtle introspection. All right? Yeah. I think that's harsh criticism of Zubin Mehta, of all people. Uh, and they go on. He called Luciano Pavarotti the overhyped tenor of the century, and when it goes on and on. But, uh, and yet, of course, in this, he won the Pulitzer Prize for criticism, and he's quite honored here. And they ask, uh, they asked him at some point in an article about what he thought he was doing. He said, historically, the best critics have guarded standards, stimulated debate, and in the complex process, reinforced the importance of art in society. They have been tastemakers, taskmasters, and possibly ticket sellers. Some have even written well. So there you have it. So it's in that tradition of criticism that I feel free to be uh, sometimes a little bit negative. That's the only reason I brought that up. Really? Yes. So let's go to Fern Hill about okay. it. I was just a tad negative about that, Interesting. Too. You know, I'm always interested when people say, you know, this is okay for the average person, you know, <laughs> but for anyone who knows anything, well, that's, that's it's the, no good that's at a all. Fair, that's a fair comment you of know, Bernheimer. I mean, that's a little rough. Because Not of me, but it, of Bernheimer. Isn't it really, you know, the, the three or four aficionados, are they really, you know... Financing, <laughs> yeah. Well, I do. I, this production in this guy's defense, you know? I think I mean, what he, he recognized that the Zubimeda was fantastically you know, popular. Because I feel like you know the casual listener, the casual theater goer, uh, people are always well, saying you picked up on things, on a legitimate point. You know? legitimate point. I but I will the say, casual cyclist. There'll be nobody casual or otherwise who celebrates Scotland, PA. That's my uh, that's oh, my boy. Thought. It do, it doesn't get any more negative than that. Oh, right. Um, I think. Yeah, well, never mind. Let's go to Fernhill. Fernhill. So we went to that play yeah. by Michael Tucker, and it was about, uh, it, you know, one of the main characters in the play was the house, the farmhouse right. uh, that uh, they're all deciding whether they, they and their friends want to live in forever. So Michael Tucker uh, wrote it. Jill Eikenberry, his wife, uh, was one of the stars in it. And what do you know? This week when I'm reading the real <laughs> estate section, um, there's a big article about Michael Tucker and Jill Eikenberry's house in Connecticut. The house. The, the house, house is in the paper. Some PR guy has really hit the big time and, uh, you know, buffeted the support for the play with an article in the real estate section about the house itself. Boy, they got some good firm. They got some good agent. Hey, they, there's, no question. Here. there's no question. Um, so, you know, of course, they had been in L.A. Yeah. Uh, starring together, right? Um, L.A. Law. Right. Sorry about that. And they were living in L.A. when they were doing that. And then they, they ended up coming back to New York uh, for some other work. And uh, they had a house on the uh, – apartment on the west side, uh, upper west side. Right. Uh, with a, an apartment like across the hall or something for uh, Eikenberry's mother. Right. She passed, she away, passed away and they moved out. Yeah. And uh, they ended up moving to Connecticut. And they bought a house. And the fun thing is they did a couple of odd things. Number one, the house in Connecticut – much bigger than their apartment in New York. Well, of course. So here they are, um, you know, at the age when most of the most people are downsizing. They're upsizing. They were upsizing. Right. And uh, the 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 house looks like fun. It's it looks like a beautiful house, uh, amazing uh, Greek revival um, house. I think for the what uh, I forget nineteenth century or, or something that gets added on to. Um, with modern conveniences. So they have the sort of historic part of the house, which they love, and then the modern part of the house, uh, which uh, they love living in. And uh, and they love all of it. And they furnished it themselves. 
I mean, they went around to uh, yard sales and, uh, you know, went on Craigslist and so on. And so that's kind of refreshing, isn't it? You know, they didn't just hire some, you know, uh, decorator well, that's what to they the said. stars. They said they went to Craigslist. They said they it felt like they were picking up stuff on the street. I don't think it was quite that. But, it, yeah. Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> well, they they, they said one thing that didn't, I don't, I, maybe I just don't agree with. They say they don't like small furniture for small rooms. They like big clunky furniture for small rooms. Yeah, I was trying to come How can to that work? That. Well, it, you know, I think, uh, you know, I think that can work. Can it? Uh, but um, you, you're not going to have much furniture. You're not going to have much furniture. Look, yeah. if you're not using the rooms a lot, then it's, then it's not like you have to you need one cram, chair, and you, can you know, read all these yeah, different yeah, things in yeah. for X number of people. Right. Um, so, anyway, it was fun to see. And it was somewhat similar to the house they described in the play. Yes, Some they had features. a barn right. where Jill does her painting, right. which is also in the a play. thing in the yeah, play, yeah. and so on. So it was fun to read about them and uh, their enjoyment. They, they of course, also have a house, a farmhouse, in, in, in Umbria. In Italy, Italy yes. yes. Uh, which well, uh, they have renovated. Oh, the other thing they mentioned, this is very much like the play, is that she paints in her barn, and he cooks. He does all the cooking. And you'll recall that in the uh, the program you mentioned this last week, uh, they had it's reflecting the part of the play where the main character goes on and on, or a main character goes on and on about some recipe. Mark Lynn Baker gives right. a great uh, a description of this this pasta, this clam pasta recipe. There is a a two paragraph description of the recipe in the program. And I think you were uh, thinking that no, no, recipe is a little. The recipe is in the program. Oh, it is the whole recipe. The recipe is in the. So how do you like that recipe? It was terrible. Why? Uh, it was poorly written yeah. and lacking. Uh, I, I would say if you could have the recording of Mark Lynn Baker telling you how to do it, yeah. it's step by step, beautifully written. That's what you need. And uh, <laughs> but the recipe, and I said, I said in the promo for uh, last uh, week's episode that uh, Fernhill should get a Tony for best recipe. Yeah. Well, yes, in the play. Not in the program. But don't try to make that recipe uh, based on what you see in the program. But, but, it leaves out uh, but, some key but details. The award this week for worst recipe does not go to Fernhill. It goes to the New York Times for... Sourdough bread. We both saw this at the same time. We were <laughs> laughing hysterically. So the New York Times has an article, How to Make Sourdough Bread... They're going to demystify it. They're giving you a step-by-step -step recipe. You don't have to go to a fancy bakery. No, you can do this yourself. Bread. You can make they great bread. They have this wonderful picture right. of this crusty, you know, fabulous-looking loaf. Right. In all fairness, they do say it, it doesn't take much. It just takes three days. It takes three days. They say the only hard stuff is in, like, one of the days. But in, and, and, and really, and, the theme of the article is we're going to give you recipes week by week basis. All the stuff you thought was hard is going to be easy. You're going to do it yourself. And within 10 minutes or five minutes or three minutes of turning the pages, two full pages, to looking at this recipe, what do you decide? No, 15 seconds. 15 seconds. You, you it's two full New York Times it's 27, pages. 27 steps. 27 steps to sourdough Complete bread. Complete insanity. You, you, Not it, only that, what? but they list at a certain point all the uh, tools, the ingredients right. you need. Right. Nothing simple. Nothing simple. Nothing and simple. nothing that you have. Crazy stuff. Nothing simple. you got to go out and shop to get those ingredients to you do this. You're going to have to shop for a week. Yeah. And then, and then you're going to do the 27 steps. And the best part is, not going to come out great the first few times. But, but if you keep at it. But they say, they say you know, it uh, started on a Friday, you'll have great bread by Sunday. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it was 
unbelievable. I mean, if, if you wanted to write an article, either you could take it as tongue in cheek, or you could say, here's an article that's going to subtly convince you you should never bake bread. Ever. It was complete. And, and, and complete on, on its surface, they were saying the opposite. That's the worst recipe of the week. Yes. But the best recipe of the week might be in the, the well, Wall Street Journal, where they have, which, which always has the worst recipe. Well, but there's a reason for it because okay. it's it's a Wall it's Street a, Journal. It's a full recipe, beautiful looking food, yeah. and the recipe is complete it, nonsense. Right, but uh, right. the uh, recipe for French bread pizza. That sounds simple. It sounds simple. So, first of all, uh, I mean, the beauty of it is gives the history of Stouffer's French bread. Well, I was just going to say, before we start, you don't make the French bread. Okay. <laughs> That's no. not it. No, it was, no. French no. bread pizza is a Stouffer's thing. In the New York thing. Times, yeah. you, would, so then you would first have the recipe for the baguettes. And That's right. Then you'd but, make the French bread, yeah. and then you'd make the pizza part. So, it but, came about because Stouffer's yeah. was actually looking to... For another way to market uh, their extra garlic bread, they right. frozen garlic bread. What else they could do with it? Right. And uh, they decide to, you know, do this open face sandwich, which somebody in marketing says we should call it pizza. Mm-hmm. It came about in the seventies, and uh, pizza was really, you know, gaining great popularity. That especially frozen pizza right. was a new uh, fabulous thing, and so uh, and they marketed it for. You guessed it, teenagers and kids. Yeah. And uh, it was a huge hit. And it was sized to fit in your toaster oven. Right. Um, so it's it's one of those things you want to bake. It's so nostalgic. Now, I'm not even sure I've ever even eaten it, but I want to eat it now. We'll get okay? it tonight. And it looks like fun. And apparently, the secret to making your own French bread pizza, first you need to, you need to sort of pre-toast the bread. Yeah. And you need to... Um, uh, slap what, what would you say slather some mayo oh really some mayonnaise really on the bread before you put in the tomato sauce okay. put on the tomato sauce and then you let it like age for a day or two is that right really soak in no kidding uh but anyway i mean it's all in the wall street journal oh. and it's you know it, it seems like a fun thing to do to use up a bunch of uh leftover bread uh we do have Italian it. we, bread we have French leftover bread, bread all right and um, let's work on that tonight sticks yeah and uh, toast up a bunch of uh fun flavors with the pepperoni it looks irresistible doesn't it all right okay. i'm looking forward to that uh great and more on food we have quite the food update here. More on food, yes. Um, I guess because after that bike ride, I'm still hungry. Yeah. Um, the gel just didn't do it for me. Um, the um, An article in the Wall Street Journal this past week about solo dining. Oh, yeah, right. right okay, right, yeah. and the, uh, um, the pleasures of solo dining. Now, they say there's more and more solo dining uh, happening, uh, partly because... Uh, more, there's this huge growth in single-person households, but partly because we're all so busy, we don't get a chance to eat together. Right. I mean, uh, us in particular, for how many years? I eat dinner when I eat dinner, and when you come home, yeah, come uh, you home eat dinner late. at about 9.30 at night. Right. Um, so, I mean, I'm there, but you're eating uh, right. basically by yourself. So anyway, uh, many people are in that situation. Uh, so... Uh, companies are noticing this and, of course, trying to benefit from it. So the Philadelphia cream cheese people are thinking, ah, you know, uh, who's going to eat a whole, if you're living alone, uh, you're not going to want a whole cheesecake, mm-hmm. right? So they're beginning to market individual cheesecakes, individual 
cups of cheese dip with veggies or whatnot. So there's this variety of snacks. There's an emphasis on uh, marketing toward the idea of smaller, flexible meals. People aren't eating breakfast, lunch, dinner. Mm -hmm. They're eating here, there, now and then, uh, maybe more than three times a day, and maybe little bits. Okay. So uh, with an eye towards that, uh, you know, uh, again, these dips and the snacks and so on and so forth, but also the concept of these bowls. Now, everywhere you go now, they have some kind of grain bowl or bean bowl, you know, and there's veggies in it and, you know, quinoa. We did it. We had that at LPQ the other night. Yes. Okay. So um, more and more the frozen food companies, Healthy Choice, Banquet, Bird's Eye, are marketing those in individual servings. Mm -hmm. Now, for years, you've seen various pasta dishes and things in a big bag, you know, meant to feed a family or four, but uh, now you're seeing more of these bowl things. And do you know what the important thing is? That it be fork only. Oh, yeah, okay. Because solo dining happens on the couch. Uh If you have an entree that needs a knife, like a chicken breast, uh, that's for someone who's eating at a table, hmm. and the solo diner eats. Uh, you know, you know. I'm thinking uh, French, French not, bread not pizza not could be solo dining. Yeah, it probably has been for many years. <laughs> yeah, right. okay. And they also mentioned the the whole practice of going out to restaurants, and that it is getting less and less. Um, you know, uh, stigmatized. Stigmatized. Uh, sure, to I, I, be I, alone I, I, dining. I, I and, you know, that. I've done my share of that. Also, have, yeah. you know, having uh, you know lived. Uh, abroad occasionally mm. and uh, having you know traveled mm. a fair amount. When I go to a restaurant, you know, just because I'm alone doesn't mean, you know, tonight I'm eating McDonald's right. or just, you know, eating some dried out takeout food back in my room. Uh, so uh, I've been working on that for years. And sometimes you do get bad treatment uh, being a single, but there's all kinds of encouragement to uh, learn how to relax and enjoy it. The big uh, stigma is if you sit there eating alone and you and you just read, that means you're uncool. Is that right? You're not yeah. supposed to do that? Yeah. You, you know, the really relaxed solo diner chats a little, looks around the room, people watches, uh, you know, just enjoys the food, right. uh, relishes I, I think, the wine. I, I think a lot of people read, honestly. But I know you cut a wide swath through Rome, so uh, uh, you've got experience in this. Um all right. Uh, Major League Baseball. You thought we were going to get through without mentioning Major oh. League Baseball. Oh, yes. Yes. I can see that. I know what's going on. You did have an article about living arrangements uh, of the type that were reflected in the Fern Hill play. People who Yeah, were, I just thought that was funny. There's this play being produced that's a, where people are trying to make up their minds. Do they want to... Right live together on this uh, at this farmhouse. Sure. Well, there's, then there's a whole article in the New York Times about new kinds of living arrangements, especially for older people. They cover shared housing where, you know, usually there's somebody with a house and other person may move in mm-hmm. to kind of help out with stuff, etc. There's co-housing, which is what the Fernhill uh, group was talking about, where people join together mm-hmm. to live, you know, in some kind of condo, etc. They share a house, may share meals, uh, etc. Um, and then there's this whole idea of a village movement where the village shares all kinds of mm-hmm. homeowner kind of responsibility and social responsibilities. And, uh, you know, they're actually 
businesses, which was mentioned in the play. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah, there uh, that uh, help people set these right. things up. Lawyers, basically. Lawyers, you know, putting together contracts, etc. But there are also people who kind of who try to match up yeah. groups to create this. And the problem is, uh, none of that is going very well. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Um, you know, the, there's um, especially in terms of of home share. There's this, uh, the New York Foundation for Senior Citizens has a home share program, has one for, has had it for 40 years. Okay, last year they matched up 49 people mm. to live together. That's not a lot. No. And uh, they say maybe it's a matter of promotion, maybe people just don't know about it. it it's just... It's it, probably it, hard it, to do. But, uh, so anyway, apparently it's on it's a, a lot thing. of minds. Well, that, that's always, that was a genesis for the play. Also not a great play. So, um, Major League Baseball. Quickly. Uh, with fewer fans in the seats, teams offer a place to stand. I'll get back to that. This is an article in the Times which talks about how teams are doing attendance-wise because the average ticket sold per Major League game is going downhill. And they have a graph which shows this in very stark terms. And it's clearly doing a real downturn. Uh, as Ms. Granger can see as I show her the picture. Uh, and they do have an interesting uh, set this of... This is even with knitting night? Even with, yes, even with stitch and pitch. So when you uh, look at it on a team-by-team -team basis, you say, why is it? What's going on? Who's succeeding and who's not? And what's the basis in which they might be succeeding? And it's, it's kind of as you'd suspect, which is there are a couple places that you just won't have Major League Baseball, which let's call it Florida. Uh, Tampa Bay will not draw no matter what. Miami Marlins will not draw no matter what. Whether they win, whether they lose, forget it. Those teams have to get out of there. But if you look at other cities, um, the big spenders, the super successful teams, guess, well, guess what? They do super well in the biggest cities. New York and L.A., very high attendance even across the board. Boston does very well you know, because they're an elite uh, fan base and they've done very well for years and years and years. Everybody else, it goes up and down with whether they win or they lose. And you just look at the graphs, and if you know a little bit about Major League Baseball, and you know, for example, the Tigers are down this year, and, uh, you know, the Washington team is up this year, you just look at the graphs, and say, yeah, when they're, when they're good, they draw. And when they're not good, they don't draw. It's a little bit of a zero-sum game. But uh, you live with that. But uh, here's what's interesting. So what are they doing about trying to draw even in situations when otherwise you wouldn't think they would draw? And they have a new way of selling tickets or at least selling, getting money, and that is subscriptions. They're selling subscriptions, certain teams, including the Mets, for X dollars a month, in the Mets case, $40 a month. You can come to any game, standing room, standing room, standing room only. Uh, but you can go to any game. So you could have, go to 20 games. In a particular month, if they had 20 games that month, more likely they'd have 15. You really have to stand? You have to stand. I, you know, I have, I believe, I, I believe from my experience, because you know, in the games. When they, there are empty seats, you just sit, sit yeah. anywhere. I'm pretty sure you could sit. But they sell them as standing room because you're not guaranteed a seat, right? So they're just kind of counting no one will come. They just want to have the subscription. You know, they're not counting no one will come because they have a lot of empty seats. They're, they're getting money, whatever people pay the $40 a month. They're getting people uh, to get into the team. They're enlarging their fan base. They're drawing, gauging interest. People are coming in. They're buying sodas. You really think this is going to work? No, but but that's what they're doing. Well, tell me, why don't people in Florida like to go to baseball? That games? I can't answer. Uh, and is it only are those other teams mostly mostly what you mentioned are old, established, yes, classic but, teams? Yes, and but but there are some teams that are not established. Houston's doing very well this year. Obviously, they're very successful. 
the uh, they're more established. Texas has always been a big baseball place, hasn't it? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that. You know, uh, but let me answer a question about Florida. When the kids when the kids were little, yeah. Uh, a kid came from Texas, and he was so much better yeah. than every kid that, in New Jersey. That's what we call, when we're being kind, anecdotal evidence. That doesn't tell us anything. But well, let me tell you this. In answer to your question as to um, what's going on in Florida, this will make uh, this is not the answer, but th- consider this. They love football. People in Florida love football. They support the uh, Miami Dolphins football team like crazy. They support the college football teams unbelievably. Florida State, University of Florida, University of Miami. They don't go for baseball. I don't understand. So, draw your own conclusions. That's just weird. Are all these stadiums like indoors, right? So it's not Uh, a matter of sitting out in the hot. uh, The the Miami Moreland Stadium is indoors now. They're still not drawing. Uh, Do I know if Tampa Bay is indoors? No, I don't think Tampa Bay is indoors. And does Miami, do they like Basketball? Well, they, they did get excited because they had LeBron James for a few years. So they're doing a little better with basketball, but really is a football state. That's weird. Uh, Texas is really, notwithstanding this kid who was a good athlete, uh, a football state. Uh, most of the football players in the country come from Texas, uh, California, or Florida, just for future reference. Uh, anyway, you, I don't want to take any more time because I'm interested to hear about the history of soap. Which you I are not. Next. You are not. You're right, I'm not. In the, in the Wall Street <laughs> Journal, under historically speaking, the yeah. Amanda Foreman column, yeah. which is often kind of fun and interesting, she does give the history of soap, okay? The uh, adolescence aside, she said, human beings like to be clean and any product make, made of fats, oil, Alkaline salts and water will help them stay that way. The Babylonians yeah. knew how to make soap as early as 2800 BCE. Um, I mean, you know, uh, in Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia basically, you know, invented everything. You know, that's where uh, Iraq is today. Um, so it's just, it's no surprise to me. And uh, the Egyptians used soap. Uh, they had some soap about a thousand years later, uh, but they only used it for skin conditions. Uh-huh. They didn't use it on a regular basis, apparently. The Greeks and Romans had some kind of soap, but it was very harsh, and they avoided using it until until Julius Caesar's conquest of Gaul. Yeah. Remember what Gaul is? No. France. Yeah. Okay. Where they had a yeah. Celtic recipe. Uh-huh. Okay, that was uh, quite, uh, you know, uh, was uh, much uh, more soothing and was made into balls that were excellent for cleansing the body. Okay, those French, you know, <laughs> going back thousands of years, they know how to do um, cosmetics, I guess. Um, so, and then and she goes on to tell all these other funny, uh, interesting things that uh, usually in the southern countries in Europe, uh, they're using natural, you know, vegetable oils and perfumes, etc. Whereas in the north, they're using animal fats and whale blubber. Mm. 
Um, so, so this is this is Amanda Foreman. This is who's, who writes this. This is just her yeah, article. She looks up the history of <laughs> uh, interesting things every week. And you know when? Uh, first of all, it's John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, that had that great saying: "Cleanliness is next to godliness," right. which may have encouraged people to uh, bathe a little bit more. But it was really war. Okay, the Crimean War and uh, the uh, Civil War in the U.S had such high rates of disease because of lack of sanitation right. uh, that there was this you know, strong urging for soldiers to bathe every day, use soap every day that really got uh, our obsession with bathing oh, going. Okay. Um, and, uh, All right, I just, I just feel bad. People there, I mean, she makes a lot of good points. Can't you know? see you gesticulating throughout oh, you know, this entire It's the thing. Crusaders. You're going crazy. The what? Crusaders yeah. come back in the 14th century, come back from the Middle East, yeah. all right, with soap, all right? And, and that revives uh, the idea of using soap in Europe, but not enough to stop the bubonic plague. Well... <laughs> Well, I think that's a big miss, honey. I mean, yeah. <laughs> really. Uh, you can't say the soap thing worked out real well if you couldn't stop the bubonic plague, but all right. I mean, people are figuring this stuff and figuring stuff out, but it's not catching on. You know, once in a you know, they were wrong. You know, you can build a better mousetrap yeah. and uh, et cetera. <laughs> all right. And it doesn't work out. Uh, Jerome Fasher passed away. Uh, he was the lawyer for Beatrice in a very famous uh, pollution case some years ago. But uh, more to the literary point, that that case, that uh, product liability case, became the subject of a very famous book called The Civil Action, famous among lawyers. Because all lawyers, not, uh, many lawyers would say to each other, have you read A Civil Action? It's, it's so remarkably faithful to the way a lawsuit actually uh, proceeds. It's unbelievable. And it was a best-selling book, believe it or not, and it became a film, a movie, starring uh, as uh, the uh, plaintiff's lawyer, none other than John Travolta, and as Jerome Fasher, the defense lawyer, none other than Robert Duvall, who I thought was great in the movie. Well, you loved the movie. No, I didn't love the movie. I thought the movie was okay. I thought that Duvall was great. Duvall at one point says to John Travolta, and Duvall is the senior part of the defense guy. He really knows what he's doing. And uh, Travolta is the firebrand uh, attorney representing the plaintiffs, and he just wants to represent them do what they want. And uh, Duvall goes up to Travolta and says, here, he takes a $20 bill. He tears it in half. He hands half it to Travolta. He says, this is $20 million. Here's one half. You settle the case, I'll give you the other half. And Travolta says, I don't, I don't know about that. I have these people. This is what they want. This is what they fought for. This is what they want. And, and Duvall says to him, you know something? Uh, not and he, not speaking to win his case. Not to even favor his client so much. In a very responsible way, he says, let me give you some avuncular advice. I've done a lot of these lawsuits, okay? I am telling you that this is the best result for your client. If you take this settlement, you will do the best by yourself and your client. If you take, if you go another direction, with the client's relationship, you are not going to help anybody. That's my advice. And Travolta, you know, of course, is, is full of his clients, you know, enthusiasm and hubris and whatever. And they go forward. And, of course, it's a disaster. And they end up having an unsuccessful lawsuit. And they run out of money to uh, to uh, finance it. And they get nothing compared to the $20 million that are being offered. What I thought was wonderful about the movie was that Duvall was not a terrible guy. He wasn't a bad guy. He actually said to them, this is the best you're going to do. This is the most money you're getting from my client. 
And he was being honest, and he was right. And Travolta didn't have the, uh, the wisdom or the experience to take his, or at least even didn't even think about it. So anyway, it was kind of an interesting movie. But we were talking about old movies briefly, and we were getting a little debate because I think there are some old movies I like better than you do. And last night I was watching a movie called Holiday with Cary Grant uh, and Catherine Hepburn. Uh, and uh, and a week or so ago we, we watched together a movie called State of the Union. Uh, that, too, that was Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. And what interests me about both those films, first of all, I thought they were excellent films. The, uh, the first one, George Cooker, uh, the second, uh, who's a great director who did uh, the Jimmy Stewart movie, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, it will come back to me. But in any event, um, uh, they're existential movies to me. I mean, they're kind of interesting. They're, they're banter, they're funny, they're quick, and you can imagine with Catherine Hepburn in it, that's the way it's going to be. And I'm not the hugest Catherine Hepburn fan, but... In both cases, they're looking at real questions. In the case of State of the Union, it's, it's the way politics are actually done. I thought it was a pretty realistic fashion, didn't you? Well, think I, that? No, I don't know that much about inside politics, but I mean, it was uh, it was about a candidate yeah. uh, running for president or yes, hoping sir. to run for president. Right, right, right. And uh, just how the whole big political machine works. Yeah. It was also about, you know, uh, marriage and uh, morals and, you right. know, um, standing but I thought, up but for I, what you believe in, etc. In an adult way, I thought. Yes. No, I thought that was excellent. I thought it was uh, the one funny comment is uh, was from one of your friends who was saying, "In what universe do you choose uh, Angela Lansbury over Catherine Hepburn?" Yeah, Angela being the sex bomb and Catherine <laughs> Hepburn being the simple woman at home. Um, and uh, you know that occurred to me during the movie as well. But it's but a closer I, question than you but might But I guess, think. you know, as they always say, power is a great aphrodisiac. And Angela Lansbury was playing a very powerful and, and Angela Lansbury, publisher yes. uh, of a newspaper. And, uh, you know, when she said jump, all the men would just say how high. Well, and uh, yeah. I think that wooed Spencer Tracy's character to some great extent. So well, that was fun. I, to me, Holiday was just a snore. Um, it just, it's <laughs> that same old story yeah. of, um, you know... Uh, Cary Grant is quite the cutie, and um, it's just that that old conflict that uh, a really interesting guy is not going to uh, be, you know, um, I don't know, the solid citizen with the, you know, regular financial job who's, you know. Well, but that's the point of the movie. I mean, first of all, it's a John Barry play, which yeah. is interesting because John Barry, of course, wrote Philadelphia Story. Right. Uh, so he knows. And he writes doing. about the wealthy, right? And so, and what, but, a, a little bit of the movie was that another another chance to get inside some uh, fancy mansion, right? Uh, in uh, nineteen late nineteen thirties New York, right? But it also, but Cary Grant had a job. He had a finance job. He was an investment banker, and what he was doing was saying, "I'm successful in this area. Before I get too uh, embedded in it." I want to step out and try other things, even if it means that ultimately I'm not going to earn as much money as I, as I might otherwise. Right. And, and How that, shocking well, is that? I thought that was interesting. I thought that was interesting. Of course, Catherine know, it's, Hepburn's... It's that old theory that, you know, uh, you know that that guy is always uh, the better guy, the more interesting, it's, it's, uh, it's, the more attractive guy. Well, it's fine, okay? Well, Cary Grant then, is kind and, of an interesting guy. And Catherine guy. Hepburn was... A, her little quirky self, yeah. you know, she wants to throw a party that's not like the normal socialite well, okay. party. Right. I mean, that's fine. It's just, and maybe it's even true, but it's all, it's just to me, another movie cliche. Yeah. And, uh, but that's course, where the cliches come from. Even though, you know, he's originally in love with her sister, in the end, uh, you know, of course, uh, Cary Grant and well, 
Catherine Look, I, I am not going to say that Holidays is good as movie State of the Union, which I thought was really good. But they were both worth seeing. Yeah, if you can find State of the Union. Uh, uh, I think it has a lot of well, pertinent kind of, re- lot of currency. relevance yeah. uh, to today. Yeah, some great dialogue. Some great dialogue. All right, yes. so you had some points on memory to close us out. Yes, well, you know. Um, if you remember. It, I, I can only barely remember. Anyway, the New York Times, you pointed out a couple articles to me, and uh, one of them actually was uh, a tale of rodents and forgetting. And it turns out they've done a, a bunch of studies about rodents and what's going on in the hypothalamus uh, when you sleep. All right. So apparently when mice sleep, they're... They have certain neurons, the MCH neurons, uh, wake up and start to set in, set a, uh, this process of releasing memories, releasing things, erasing memories of things that I guess have happened during the day. All right. And this only happens during that deep REM sleep. Right. right? The point being that, uh, you can't, you know, your brain is so full of data. It can't function if you remember everything. Right. The beginning of the article details this man who is going, uh, shows up at a uh, neuropsychologist <coughs> yeah. because his problem is he can't forget anything. As a result, he's a terrible abstract thinker. He can't recognize right. people because his memory has them at each particular point. And if they don't look exactly like that, when he, you know, first met them, he doesn't know who they so are. So the point is that the, the you can't you function need, at a highest level unless you forget. And sleep is important. It, it's that's the only time these neurons are activated. All right. So forgetting is a good thing. Forgetting is a good thing. Now, your brain can step in. You know, it's not like everything is just flushed. Your brain will step in and try to and will maintain preserve things that important, seem important things. They yeah, have right. some kind of alerts for that. But so you know. That seems uh, pretty interesting. And they say, you know, and you still, you will remember things, painful things, awful things, whether you want to or not. Um, So there is that. So they don't understand everything, but they're uh, getting better and better. You know, I think I must just have a very healthy, you know, MCH neuron system going on because I forget an awful lot of stuff. Yes, you're very healthy. There's no yes. question about it. You know, it. My, my systems are functioning. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, then there was another article uh, entitled, What Will My Grandchild Remember of Me? And it's a grandmother uh, wondering uh, kind of, you know, what will stick with her grandchild? And it turns out um if your grandchild is less than three years old, perhaps not much. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's not until like uh, you know, getting closer, a little bit older than three, towards five and six, etc., that memories really start to solidify. And of course, you can aid that. You can you know repeat stuff, go over stuff. We went to the zoo. What did we see? Mm-hmm. Did you tell mommy about the giraffe? Here's a picture of a giraffe, etc. Right. Um, but uh, you know, it takes a certain amount of um, learning and processing that just isn't available to the child till they're older. And what this grandmother says is, but what I really want her to do uh, is remember me. Remember. I was there and remember I loved her. 
I was, you know, supportive of her, etc. Not, you know, not even little event, every little event we went to. And the doctor here says that's what's really important. That fundamentally, you know, loving, happy, good, supportive relationships are very important for, you know, helping form a person, uh, develop uh, their ability to have positive attachments later in life. Um, so that I thought was interesting. Yeah, no, I think it's fascinating, honestly. And I think that was kind of a poignant story about this woman thinking about, you know, uh, what's going to be remembered. Uh, and, um, you know, it's a fair question to ask yourself. Yeah. But also just the idea that even, you know, no matter what, yeah. uh, ways of being, your health is being set into motion at a very early age, um, even if you don't remember grandma, uh, your body, your mind, your heart is functioning, uh, having felt her love. Yes. Yes. That's the point. And that enables you to do some loving in the future. All right. So speaking of memory, of course, I've been scrambling because uh, I felt bad that I couldn't remember uh, the director of uh, State of the Union. And of course, it's Frank Capra. So we have that. Uh, but that's it. Uh, for this week of Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. Yes, I'm Tamsin Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. And we'll see you next week.